So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Hi, I'm Sarah Weinstein, the external director of the Wellness Project at Stanford Law School. Today we have a special episode of the Wellness Cast that my co-host Joe Bankman is going to do alone because he goes way back with our guests, Phil Stutz and Barry Michaels, authors of the New York Times bestseller, The Tools, and their new book that just came out recently called Coming Alive. I'll be back for our next show in November, and now I hope you'll enjoy this intimate conversation between friends. Welcome to the Wellness Cast. I'm Joe Bankman, professor at Stanford Law School and also a psychologist. I'm going to start off today talking about the category famous therapists. At any given point in time, there's always a few of those around. They tend to develop reputations as great clinicians and then prove to be great writers, connecting with the public in the same way they connect with patients. We've been lucky enough to have two of them at Stanford, Irv Yalom and David Burns. My guests today, Phil Stutz and Barry Michaels, fall into that category. They first got national attention when they were described in a New Yorker profile as go-to therapists for those on the creative side of the entertainment industry. Their first book, The Tools, sat on the New York Times bestseller list for almost forever. And they have a new book out, Coming Alive, Tools to Defeat Your Inner Enemy, Ignite Creative Expression, and Unleash Your Soul's Potential. Welcome, Phil and Barry. Thanks so much, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Barry, you and I were associates together in big law, or what passed for big law way back when, and have been friends for a lot of years. As a therapist, I've learned a lot from your and Phil's writings, but it's been a real thrill as a friend to see your success. As my mother would say, using some Yiddishisms, I get a lot of nachas, and I like to cavell about you. Are you Jewish? (laughs) (laughs) You'd never guess, yeah. Not in a million years, Yeah. I I appreciate it, Joe. I have to say that you were actually one of the people who really made it okay for me to quit the practice of law. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you actually pointed out that the one thing I really did enjoy at our law firm was that for some reason, other associates and employees would come to me for advice. And I was reasonably good at giving it. And even more important, I just enjoyed it. Well, it's it's really great to find that a life path that you've taken, even if it's not the right one, can often lead to one that is the right one. Exactly. Guys, our goal today is to give listeners a taste of what you're about. The title of the book talks about an inner enemy. And Phil, do you want to say a few words about what that is? Yeah. Um, when I started out I, as a shrink, you know, I had just finished my training, uh, my psychiatric training. And I had um, actually I had a lot of patients pretty soon. I would say within the first year. I had a fairly full practice, which was unusual. And I think the reason that my practice filled up so quickly was because I was an enthusiast. And some of the um, enthusiasm would rub off on my patients. So whatever kind of problem they were were bringing to bear, they came in with. 
Um, my attitude was, we're going to really basically cure you. And um, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do anything to, to help you get over the, the problem. Now, at first, that had a very salutary effect on the, on the patients. They, through my enthusiasm, I, I, a lot of the patients were improving. Uh, maybe their stuff didn't go away completely, but it certainly got less, and they, there was some sense of progress. And I was, I was getting a swelled head. Oh yeah, I, I know how to get, uh, I know how to do things that most therapists can't do. Um, I'm not constrained by the limitations of psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, whatever. But then something happened, um, which freaked me out. And what it, what happened basically was all the progress that these patients made. At, at some point or another, went away, and they ended up back where they started from. And it, it was um, it, it was worse than being back where they started from because not only had the the, the um, their progress been nullified, but they also lost faith in me, and they lost faith in, in therapy in general. So they they were they were um, the therapy had actually been a negative for them. Some of them were, were quite angry at me about that because I had made promises that I couldn't actually keep. So that's that's the setup for what I was um, facing at that time when I was really young. Um, so this ha it happened so many times with so many patients. Finally. Um, I was able to feel what was going on and why everybody was regressing and going back to this, to basically where they started from. And the, and the, the only way I can describe it is I, I, there was a force that was acting on them that was um, fighting against everything we were doing. And it didn't particularly matter what the problem was. In other words, it could be anything from uh, high anxiety. It could be somebody who's a compulsive gambler. It could be somebody who couldn't control his temper. Somebody who's depressed and, and didn't have the wherewithal to, to change their life or to take a risk or whatever. It didn't matter. I could feel, literally feel this force. And of course, the force is thwarting them in their efforts. Yeah, that's, that's correct. What I found... This was probably over the first two, three, maybe four years of therapy. I, I, I gave the thing a name, which I, I just called it Part X, partially because X meant, at least to me, it meant a mystery. Um, but it also meant it, it will X you out, prevent you from making progress. Um, so that was that was the beginning of this thing. We all have this enemy inside of us, leading us to the same unproductive behavior or thoughts again and again. Exactly. And it's, look, what we're saying, I know, and I know it's a stretch for people to think in terms of this, this intelligent being living inside of you, thwarting you every step of the way. But even if you just call it the force of habit, it will do everything that it can to hold you back. If you want to write a book or start a business, it'll get you to procrastinate. Let's say you do start the book or, you know, go try to get a loan. As soon as you hit a setback, it'll get you to give up. And the most common form that it takes is it's just that voice in your head constantly undermining you. You know, you're a loser. Oh, my God, don't try that. You'll just embarrass yourself. 
I know you're on a diet, but you really deserve a break today. Just have that one donut. And, and so whatever form it takes at any moment, you know, of your day, it's always working against you. And what, what Phil, I, the, the real revelation for me when I met Phil was that he was able to explain how this undermining tendency inside of you was actually the key to developing your potential. In other words, if you can, if we, you can use tools to overcome this inner enemy, then there's almost nothing that you can't do. And I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't mean to go on and on, but your the song that you chose for the intro to your podcast is a Leonard Cohen song that I love because of this one line that says, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And that essentially expresses our whole philosophy of therapy, which is part X breaks you, it cracks you in, in some way. But if you can work with it, if you can use our tools to overcome it, then the light comes in, then the potential really has space to expand. Barry, it's a gorgeous line. And I wonder if we could ask all of our listeners to pause for a second. Don't do this if you're driving. And think whether there's an anxious or depressed bully inside of you, some repetitive pattern or force that's stopping you from getting to where you want to go. Barry, now take me through an example of how that inner enemy operates. Your book is divided into descriptions of common problems, common inner enemies. One problem is addiction and impulse. And suppose I have an addictive personality and it might be gambling, it might be alcohol or sex or a shopping spree, and maybe everybody likes to do some of those things. But for me, it's always 24-7 in my mind is the primary reward. What do I do? Well, Joe, you think this is a podcast, but it's actually we've organized an intervention. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We've got friends and family members standing by. <laughs> In that case, surfing the web is what I'd like you to focus on. <laughs> so look, this, this affects everyone, everyone. One of Part X's favorite tactics is just to get you to give in to one impulse after another, whether it's food or drugs or updating your social media page. I mean, when my phone pings, I'm like Pavlov's dog. It's really hard to interrupt, it to, not to interrupt whatever it is I'm doing, not to check it. Now, what we do is we give you a tool in the book with which you can control any impulse. Let me explain the philosophy behind the tool. And then if you want to, I can run you through the tool. I'd so the, the philosophy is like this. Think about it. If you crave something outside of yourself, whether it's ice cream, a cigarette, you know, checking the news for the latest outrage, then something must be missing inside of you, right? I mean, if there weren't some sort of emptiness inside, you wouldn't feel impelled to fill it. You'd have more of a take it or leave it attitude. Now, sometimes you can control that impulse with sheer willpower. I want to check my phone. I'm not going to let myself do it. I want to. I'm not going to. And that's that can be successful sometimes. But the problem with that approach is that it keeps the focus on the outside world as the source that's going to fill you up. 
And the best you can hope for with that approach is I've successfully controlled this impulse, but I'm still left with a gaping hole inside. That's what in AA they call a dry drunk. And we can, we can talk more about the psychology of that if you're interested. But what would happen? I mean, just ask yourself, what would happen if I gave up on the outside world ever filling me up? I mean, after all, it never really has because I still keep wanting these things. What would happen if I gave up on the outside world, turned away from it, and just looked inside and paid attention to the emptiness? Simply visualize a void inside of me. Now, strangely enough, this is where the magic happens because, and, and, and just go with me here, if you can stare into the empty void and stay calm, the nothingness turns into a somethingness something that can actually fill you up inside. And that is a much more permanent answer to addiction and craving. Now, in order to construct a tool, what we had to do, Phil and I, was come up with a symbol for that somethingness that's inside of you. And for all of human history, the sun has been a symbol for abundant energy and warmth and life that just lasts forever. Now, we decided to make the sun black. We decided to make it look just like the sun at a moment of to total solar eclipse. Because what we wanted to do was have that, that visual remind you that you've essentially obscured this inner sun by trying to fill yourself up in the outside world over and over and over again. And in other words, in a sense, the outside world has eclipsed your inner strength. So that's the whole idea behind the tool. My um, way into this uh, issue has to do with deprivation. Um, and for me, what I find is if you, so you have something you want, you want to eat a chocolate cake and you don't eat it, right? Now, at that point, you're going to have a feeling of deprivation. But once you... Once you take that feeling of deprivation and look, and look inside yourself, the feeling of being deprived actually becomes like a flashlight. It actually helps you see inside yourself and it has tremendous potential. So, and that's, that's what we call the black sun. And eventually the, the, uh, the sun part of it, again, if you, if you remain calm, and you can you 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 you're repurposing your sense of deprivation. In a way, you can remove the blackness and and the sun with all its potential. And not it's not just that you can see it; you you actually can feel it. So, and the way I call I call that just I like to make up these little mantras. I call it deprivation is creation. And so my patients like it because they can remember that. It's a it's a complete reversal of the uh, of the experience of deprivation. It, it makes it potent. And you know, one thing I forgot to say before about part X, which is has a bearing on this, which is see, part X will create a, a, a small problem, or it could be a big one. But let's say in this case, you you're overeating chocolate cake, and um, then because you can't solve the problem that. Cortex creates it. It's so that's that's a sense of impossibility. That sense of impossibility starts to spread 
beyond the specific problem. And that's where you get the modern person. So many people that are coming to us that, that want more out of life, they want to accomplish, and they can't. It seems impossible. And the, the whole idea of using tools um, to, to nullify or to overcome the, the part X symptoms, in this case, it's an addiction to chocolate cake, that starts to build up the sense of possibility instead of impossibility. And so all of, all of life is kind of a chocolate cake that we keep thinking is going to satisfy us. Yes. No matter how much we get, even when we can afford the best chocolate cake, we're actually not any happier. Exactly. I, I also want to pick up on something that Phil said about deprivation as creation, because as 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 crazy as this maybe sounds to, to people who are really just learning this for the first time, when you when you use this tool over and over and over again, you begin to look forward to your impulses, not because you're going to gratify them, but because you're going to be able to turn deprivation, the experience of deprivation, into something empowering, which is a, it's a it's an amazing kind of um, 180 degree switch from from our whole society's philosophy, which is just get as much as you possibly can. It's like I'm actually looking forward to depriving myself because I know that that leads to something really good coming up inside. Barry, the point you just made is consistent with mindfulness, which a lot of our listeners have heard of or tried. Mindfulness teaches us to be aware of our desires, but understand that we don't have to satisfy them. In fact, accepting the desire without feeling the need to satisfy it is one of the keys to a mindful life. Yes, exactly. It's almost like punctuation. Part X wants to put the period at the end of, um, I want it, get it. And what we want to do is extend the period out. So it's like, I want it. I don't get it. Interesting. What happens next? Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm also thinking of the concept of distress tolerance, which is big in a very complicated word uh, that describes a therapeutic technique called dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. And that's the notion that real strength comes when you can sit with the distress and see what happens then. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I would say that we're going just one step further from that because those are essentially skills that are used to tolerate pain. That's right. But this goes beyond that. What we're saying is the pain of deprivation actually puts you in touch with a resource you never knew you had. There's something mysterious inside of you. I mean, in a larger sense, you know, with the history of psychology, this is the kind of difference between depth psychology and, you know, these more cognitive behavioral approaches. And to me, it doesn't really matter. I'm not that into differentiating between the two, but I am into um, telling people that this isn't this isn't just going to allow you to tolerate deprivation. You're going to discover something inside of you that you never knew was there. Yeah, I, I think that's worth repeating. It's so important that um, w w this is not we're not into curing in quotes. That you have a problem, we're going to cure you. We're we're into finding potentials in in each of us, which are a little different in each person. Mm -hmm. In, in therapy, using tools, if you can restore the sense 
of growth of, of forward motion, um, that's, that's not exactly a cure. It's more like transcending the problem altogether. And um, we, all, we always try to keep that in the forefront. Like, where are you going? What's going to be meaningful for you? What's specifically meaningful for you? And if you can, if you can use the tools to overcome part X and keep moving forward, that, that's actually more important than a cure, so to speak. Um, it also helps people when, because part X is, um, it's relentless it's, and it's, it's, it's ruthless. And it's not going to go away. We call that ceaseless immersion. You know, everybody is ceaselessly immersed in this counter force that doesn't want you to grow. And um, when you understand that, then you understand your, your task, which is to, to um, fight every, to fight part X with complete utter commitment for life. Mm which is very different than, than a cure, so to speak. Yes. We're always in our society looking for a final end point, you know, whereas well, Phil's and my philosophy is there's no final end point until you die. It's, it's, you're constantly, constantly going to be battling with this. But the payoff, which sounds like a drag, but the payoff is your, your potential is constantly expanding. You're constantly discovering new levels of excitement, enthusiasm, inspiration, et cetera. Barry and Phil, let me go back to an addiction example and try to incorporate what you just said. You tell me if and when I give up the promise of my addiction, my chocolate cake, I become energized. How does that happen? You know, I, what I do is I, don't, I just don't leave things on that level because I, I think Phil and I would both agree we don't want therapy to be a discussion of intellectual ideas or concepts. So when a person asks me a question like that, what I say is close your eyes. <laughs> and what I'm going to do at that moment is to just take them right through the tool so that they can actually experience what I'm otherwise trying to explain in an intellectual way. And then they're coming up with some counter argument why it's not going to work or it doesn't exist or, you know, They'll link it to some ideology that they don't agree with or something like that, which is another difference between the type of therapy that Phil and I do. It's very experiential. We really try to get past all of the logical, intellectual arguments that people use that really that part X uses in order to deny them the experience that they actually want to be having. So instead of trying to, in a way, understand this podcast in a kind of analytic way, what you want someone to do is to try one of those exercises that you have and experience it and see where that takes them. Exactly. Because the moment we can create a new experience for a person, they have a foothold that they can go back to again and again and again. So when they're outside of my office and they're experiencing a craving for an ice cream cone, they can go back to that experience and recreate it and realize, I don't need it. I don't need that ice cream. I feel filled up from within. Yeah, and that force that, that fills you up from within is really the ultimate creative force. So the, you know, because of the way society is going, there's more and more interest in, in um, 
in creativity. Everybody wants to write a screenplay or whatever they want to do, and that's good. It's healthy. But the ultimate, the ultimate and priceless experience of creativity is when you can change your inner state, and we call that a turnaround. So if you're depressed and you can bring yourself out of it at least enough maybe to take the next step in whatever it is you're doing. Um, if you if you have a bad temper and you can take the next step and, and um, control it, et cetera, et cetera, those are creative acts. And, and the substrate that you're working on, your medium isn't clay or marble or whatever, the medium you're working on is your own human soul. And that's, a, that's, that's the ultimate in, um, in, I guess you could say, satisfaction or, or confidence or potency is the ability to change your inner state. And, and part X then becomes a teacher, it becomes like a trainer, and in, in you're developing the ability to do that. But you, it's only an effective teacher if you have the specific tools so that you can change your state right in that moment. There's no argument. It's not an intellectual thing. What we always say is don't believe the word we say, but do what we tell you and see what happens. And if nothing happens, fire us. <laughs> results speak for themselves. I remember on uh, WTF, uh, Phil, you said something like, the book only costs you $20 or whatever it costs, and maybe it changes your life, and if not, you're out the $20. Most people won't spend the 20 bucks on your book or others to change their life and won't take other steps available to them. What's stopping them? Well, I'll tell you, from our point of view, Barry, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the keynote to screwing people up to demoralizing them, to making it impossible for them to really grow, is what we call the realm of illusion. And the realm of illusion is, is a final endpoint that doesn't exist, where you have what you think is the perfect life. And the perfect life is supposed to exonerate you from the, the three, what we call the laws of reality, uh, which is um, pain, which you can't, you'll have throughout your life uncertainty, which you'll have throughout your life, and the need for constant work or effort, which you'll have throughout your life. So that's, now, obviously, there's inspiration, there's pleasure, there's love, there's all kinds of fantastic things, but those three <clears throat> negatives, if you will, aren't going to go away. Now, so here's what the realm of illusion is. Um, let's say a kid comes to, because this is what we deal with every day, like a kid comes to L.A., he's an actor, and he, he's all fucked up. He, he's not nice to people. His, his ha personal habits are terrible. He avoids um, auditions. You can go on and on. But what he says is, yes, I know I have all these problems, but once I get to be a star... And that's what the realm of illusion is. My problems will go away. I will be happy. I will be happy when I reach whatever this is. Somebody else, it'll be money. Somebody else, it'll be marrying the right person. 
it doesn't really matter what the illusion is. The supposition is once I accomplish whatever it is I think I have to accomplish, in this case it's be, be a movie star, all of those problems are going to go away. Now, that's ridiculous. None of the problems go away. None of the problems go away. But here, here's the kid. He worked hard. Let's say it took him five years. And he, he became a star. And he still feels like shit. He still can't relate, let's say, to women properly. It's an example. He's, he's, he wants to write something. He's, he can't write it. There's another discipline, etc. Now, at that point, that's where you see a lot of these actors kill themselves, whether, whether they do it overtly or they do it with drugs, you know, s slowly, because their attitude is, well, I did what was expected of me, and I was promised this illusionary life, and it's not here. So I don't, want, I don't know what the hell to do now. I made it, and I still didn't make it. So that, that, that's an extreme case, obviously, which I picked just so you can understand it, but the whole society is, is geared looking for the, these illusionary, magical um, states to be in. It's a little bit like getting into the best law school. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly what it is. You know, we've mentioned your previous book, The Tools. Uh, what's the difference between the, the two books? If someone's starting off... Should they start with the most recent one? Should they should they start with the tools? Should they order them each in a box set? Um, you know, it's interesting. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this, Phil. I I feel that you could start with either book quite easily. I think each book is self-contained and um, you know stands on its own. Um, I think that our newest book goes a little bit deeper, a lot deeper, actually, into our philosophy. The first book was organized around the four most common problems that we see in psychotherapy, uh, which is good. But what the second book does is it goes deeper into those and other problems and explains the propagator of those problems, which is really part X. So, you know, I'm 50-50 on which one people read first. I think they'll get a lot out of both. I think if they're they're naive to all of this stuff, they should read the first book first, because it doesn't depend on any isn't doesn't depend on any kind of theoretical system, etc. Right. Um, and and then you just see that they're tools. The tools are real. The problems are prevalent. There are a lot of other people fighting the same thing. And, and you know, there's some stories in there of people who won. So and again, the the tools. Um, are the bridge from a, a problem into a sense of greater prowess, potential, possibility inside yourself, whatever. The first book is a little bit more concrete. If you're anxious, it gives you a metaphor and a picture about yes. how to treat your anxiety. Yes. I Also, in the first book, we go through... Um, really sort of my transformation from skepticism to really getting that this stuff works, which is, I think, I mean, I've heard over and over again from people that that was very helpful to them because, you know, we get pigeonholed as spiritual, quote unquote, which is a word that means so many different things to so many different people and to skeptics, it just means, ah, get me out of here. So it's, it's, I think it's helpful for people to read that part of the first book just to say, all right, these people are not trying to ask us to convert to a religion or something. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. Believe nothing we tell you unless you test it yourself and it works. Exactly. So two completely down-to-earth people asking others to kind of take a little risk, take a chance, and try to experience something. Exactly. We like to end each podcast uh, with a technique our listeners could use. And I wonder, Barry and Phil... Do you have a suggestion for one thing our listeners might try? I'd love to just read the Black Sun tool and have them try that. Would that be all right? Fantastic. Great. So step one is close your eyes, again, unless you're driving, and imagine that there's something you want and you can't have it. So you feel deprived and make the feelings of deprivation as intense as you can. Now, let go of the thing completely. It's as if it disappears and it's no longer available to you. And furthermore, let go of the whole outside world. It's no longer going to be a source for you. And instead, just turn inward and visualize an empty void inside of you. Just breathe, stay calm. Stay still and face the void. If anything, try to be a little curious because you don't know what's down there. Now, from the depths of the void, imagine a black sun ascending. Its energy is warm and limitless, and it just keeps expanding until it completely fills you up inside. Finally, turn your attention back to the outside world. That black sun energy overflows and just surges out of you. And as it enters the world, it becomes this pure white light of infinite giving. Essentially, you've become the sun. Thank you, Barry. Welcome. And, and thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation with my friends, Phil and Barry, who have managed to connect with so many others through their books. I hope you did too. For anyone who would like to access the resources from this podcast, including links to Phil's and Barry's books, please see our website at www.law.stanford.edu slash wellness project or Google Wellness, Stanford, and Bankman. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next time for another episode of the Wellness Cast.